I just need to like prepare him. So I was like, you do, don't be scared tomorrow if I have makeup on. And he said, it's okay. You, you do you, whatever you want. And then he said something like, <laughs> Welcome to Entanglement by Snevolution, a grassroots, women-led, migrant-driven film and media arts organization situated on the occupied traditional and ancestral territories of the Hunkaminam-speaking peoples, including the Musqueam and other Coast Salish peoples, also known as Richmond, B.C. My name is Mina Lee. I'm a first-generation immigrant settler hosting this podcast from the unceded territory of the Sunanaymo First Nation, colonially known as Nanaimo on Vancouver Island. Entanglement is a six-episode series on art, culture, and race in today's world. Through intimate conversations with artists, filmmakers, and community organizers, we explore current experiences and perspectives from the Asian diaspora. Today's episode is Unapologetic Queering, Cultural Identity and Drag. All Asian drag artists from the House of Rice talk about representation, racism, and redressing of their identities through their relationships and performances as chosen family members sharing their meals. I'm very excited to have three members from the House of Rice for this episode. The House of Rice, founded by Shay Dior, is Vancouver's iconic all-Asian drag family, composed of incredible artists who are hungry to showcase the beauty, talent, and strength in being a cutie-pock individual. With Asian cultures and societies being traditionally homophobic, the House of Rice aims to provide inspiration for other queer Asian youth to feel safe in exploring their identities. The members of the House of Rice come from diverse educational, artistic, and most importantly, cultural backgrounds, but are united by their shared goal of creating visibility and representing the queer Asian community. Welcome, Ben, Kendall, and Romy. I will let you introduce yourselves. Hi, uh, my name is Van Dang, or um, in drag, you'll know me as Shady or mother of the House of Rice. I am a Vietnamese-Canadian drag artist um, here in Vancouver. I also am the founder and co-producer of Rice Cake, our queer Asian dance party here in Vancouver as well. I like to call myself, or I like to see myself as the queer Asian revolutionist uh, at the moment, trying to just like do as much as I can to bring visibility and representation from the queer Asian community onto the main stage for everyone to see it. Oh, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Kendall Yan, or my Chinese name is Chen Lianyin. Uh, I am a second generation Chinese trans femme, non-binary artist. I live in the stolen lands of the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh nations. Um, my arts practice is primarily centered around my drag identity, which uh, is made in China. Uh, and in drag, I like to explore themes of vulnerability, queer ritual, um, and liminal experiences. I incorporate Chinese opera, glamour, punk, and performance art into that performance practice. Um, I'm a member of the House of Rice, uh, the first the first daughter of the house. Um, and I am also a part of The Darlings, which is a non-binary drag performance collective that's based out of Vancouver as well. And one of the co-owners of Queer Based Media, which is a media company that produces content for queer creators. Hi, I'm Romy Kim, or Kim Seromi in Korean, or Skim in drag. Um, I usually use the words queer, gender fluid, and second generation to describe myself. Um, I like to think about those words as verbs rather than nouns or adjectives. I think they're always constantly changing or in flux. Um, I'm currently wearing a red toque 
and I've been thinking about the word lesbians a lot lately. <laughs> I think I might be adding that to my description as well. Um, and I am an interdisciplinary artist. I work within performance, video, um, installation, and really thinking about the idea of a story as well as histories, archives, what becomes in power and how knowledge is become uh, seen as norms, I think. And I'm currently finishing my master's in fine arts right now as well. Fantastic. Um, so I've got some prompt questions for you to get you your conversation going. Um, what does being visible mean to you? Being visible to me just means like existing and showing, um, like showing up and making ourselves known to the general public. I find that because of our uh, like traditional upbringings, um, we are often like afraid to, like we're taught to keep our heads down and to not make a scene and just go get through life to be successful. And that doesn't really allow for visibility if we're not being loud and we're not being unapologetically ourselves. I think being visible is to showcase ourselves as much as we can to show people that we do exist and we are here. Yeah, I I would echo all of that. I think to add maybe, I think sometimes visibility can be a bit of a double-edged sword in that to be visible is to be perceived and thus like a bit vulnerable. And so sometimes I think about this in the way of like, um, you know, as a, as a racialized person and as a trans person to be visible can sometimes be dangerous. Um, in, you know, some people might be like looking at you, but not necessarily seeing you as the person. So it's like taking up space can be a bit risky depending on what kind of identity you take. But I think it is important as Van was saying, like to take up that space and it is empowering for other people who are like you to then feel like they also have a space. Yeah, I think what Kendall said about being a it being a double-edged sword is very relatable to me. I think there's a bit of a burden um, when you might have an identity that isn't really seen in mainstream media. And so often I think the idea of like representation is kind of thrown onto you. And sometimes I think people might, yeah, see you as almost a stereotype in a sense, even when you're just kind of trying to exist as yourself. Um, but I think also being visible is really important in order to, yeah, take up space and feel, yeah, I think feeling seen rather, just, rather than just being seen through is important. Thank you for that um, I think there's something about also uh, representing Asian identity and vulnerability in that. Um, so all of you use striking Asian traditional aesthetics in your drag. Why is queering your traditional culture important to you? I think for mm, me, I, would... um, Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I think, I think for me, um, because traditional culture um, for each of us like doesn't include queer anything queer at all and i think like if if we don't do it who else will mm -hmm. yeah exactly i think in my own personal experience i have i have two queer siblings as well as some queer cousins and in I have seen just like in my own family dynamics, like some of us not be accepted by certain family members. And, you know, knowing that from a young age that that wasn't like to be talked at at certain tables, I think it's important for me that I can make that connection just like from my own sanity. <laughs> because like, I, it, it feels like if you don't do that, then you have to fracture parts of yourself and like separate, you know, your queerness from also your heritage. And it just doesn't really make sense to me to do that. It feels very like isolating. 
I think for me, like, I'm really interested in, yeah, looking through my culture, my histories, because I think those queer histories and stories were always there, but I think certain powers have kind of erased them and certain certain stories and histories have become the ones that are constantly being told. And I think me querying those histories allows for, yeah, different possibilities to hold in the future, I think. And I think that's really important for me. Yeah, can I, if I could add to that, just because that sparked something in my head of, um, in terms of like, there are a thing that I have been really like focused on in the last year or so has been um, querying like veneration rituals and, and traditions. And in that vein of, of like, you know, that those stories have always been there. There have like, there have been queer Asian people for as long as there have been people. <laughs> so like there, there's a certain element of like when you are querying those traditions or querying culture, it's like a connection to those ancestors that you have that, that were also part of that lineage, right? So yeah, I, I really like that you said that, Romy, because it's definitely true. It's, it's always been a part of the culture. It just hasn't, it's been like taken out of the, the historical document or out of the yeah. practice. Yeah, totally. There's like this one um, Korean myth that I really love called Haridegi, Haridegi. And it's about like this thrown away princess. Um, and eventually she like, like the whole story is about how she becomes the first shaman. But in this myth, in this shaman myth, rather than um, like going back to the kingdom or like trying to be a princess again, um, she basically goes to like the underworld and like dresses as a man to like travel everywhere and then like marries this dude, but then is like, uh, yeah, I can marry you, I guess, but I'm just trying to be a shaman and like marries him just to become a shaman <laughs> and like travels a little <laughs> And so it's just like really incredible, like queer as fuck story. And I'm like, Pardegi, you are like, you're a true non-binary legend. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> totally wow just marrying for the power and the yeah oh, <laughs> oh wow yeah that, that's so beautiful like reconnecting the erased uh, heritage like ancestors um, and heritage and stories myth and also reinterpreting and um, drawing that connections um when do you feel accepted by your own traditional culture if you do? I think it's interesting because there are times when it, when I feel accepted and times when I feel rejected, right? So I think growing up, my father has always been very like openly loving towards me and my siblings. And when it came to my queerness and my transness has been nothing but like a hundred percent supportive. It, it's just like his first nature. Um, and a lot of my understanding of cultural practice and spirituality comes from him. Um, his, his practice is sort of like, he does what feels good and um, he does what feels right to him. So there's like, I've always kind of learned maybe that doing things in a strictly traditional way is not always best for an individual. Um, and actually just to, I don't know if this is rambling, but to paraphrase, um, I also heard from an elder in, in the community here in Vancouver, Paul Wong, who's an incredible artist and said to some artist friends of mine, you know, if, if the culture doesn't respect you, why are you trying so hard to respect it? <laughs> Which, you know, can maybe be a bit of a contentious statement, but I think in that is like, when I feel accepted, it's from the people who are going to accept me, if that makes sense. You know, like um, there are family members who just won't talk about queerness. And if it comes up, it'll just be like a silent thing. Um, and I, I think I learned through like my, how 
loving my father is to me and the way that I've, you know, connected to my culture, that I really don't need to waste a lot of time on those people who don't understand me or who don't want to let me into the space. Mm-hmm. They might just not be ready yet. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I feel like the first thing I thought about was like, um, like in Korea when I'm there, it's interesting because I never have to like tell people my pronouns and like I never really have to tell or correct them either just because in Korean, we never really use pronouns. So in that sense, like I, I often feel very accepted in terms of like gender because I never really have to talk about it or people. But in English, like when I'm here, like even in my cohort, like I'm just constantly correcting people or not even just about my own pronouns, but other people's pronouns too. And so there's like, I don't know, I feel like acceptance is such like a temporal kind of feeling and that moment of like feeling like you're stumbling or like you don't really belong it's like it's so quick and it it happens in like every kind of moment in every kind of culture in different kind of ways i think yeah it's complicated (laughs) (laughs) yeah i feel like with like my vietnamese culture like i i moved away from home from ontario about six years ago and i don't really have like a strong Vietnamese community here like I do have friends who are Vietnamese and we are we just go about just our lives but we don't I don't totally like we don't, haven't created like a Vietnamese specific community we, it's just been like a, like a queer Asian like our family the house of rice our events and stuff like that have just been like an umbrella of queer Asian community but I don't have like a Vietnamese community to like be concerned about being accepted here. However, my parents did a visit recently and they, I got to share with them my drag for the first time last week. And my, <laughs> it was terrifying, but it was a, a beautiful moment when I performed and I held my hand out to my mom and she grabbed my hand, stood up and hugged me during the middle of the number. <laughs> and that was probably the most accepted I've felt for my family and forever. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Do you, you know, uh, there's certain responsibility we feel as family members and also just uh, a member of the society. And when you represent something, uh, often you feel certain responsibility. Do you feel any pressure in representing your culture, whether it be queer culture or your own heritage? I, I definitely think that there is pressure in representing culture, both in a queer sense and for myself personally as like a Chinese person um, in terms of like, you know, there is that that element of being, like, unapologetic and, like, if you don't respect me, then so be it. Like, I don't need to waste time on you. But I also don't want to, you know, misrepresent myself or members of my community. And I know that when you are a performer, you hold a certain platform and there are a lot of people who are looking to you um, and a lot of people who might form their opinions of your community based on what you do. Uh, I can think of like, I did a performance um, with lion dancing in it. And uh, my friend Kimberly Wong, who uh, borrowed the lion and was dancing in the lion with me afterwards, we got a message and someone criticized us because we had no training in martial arts. And that was definitely something that made me take a step back and realize, you know, there are, there is a certain a certain amount of uh, responsibility and training that someone might hold in order to be able to practice that art. Um, But I do think that that person didn't also consider the fact that lion dancing has been a a martial art form that has been gatekept from women and from queer people. And uh, to have it in, in a queer space for me, that was the thing that I was focused on, you know, to bring the culture to the queer, queer stage um, but, you know, these things are so complex, right? So I think the pressure is definitely there. And that, that experience made me really 
step out of myself and to think like, you know, there, there are so many things to consider every time you get in front of a group of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember you talking about that in the film, Yellow Peril, that featured you very beautifully mm -hmm. and uh, had that feeling of not being Chinese enough. And mm -hmm. I think, yeah, a lot of the second generation immigrants feel that way. And um, there's certain that sense of you know, yearning and loneliness that I feel. Thank you. Uh, Romy or Van, do you want to add anything? Uh, yeah, sure. I can speak to that. I think for me, um, like I, I remember this time when I was performing in a drag king show in Korea. And um, I had chosen to do a song that was by um, Lee Hai, who's a Korean uh, singer. Who I, guess, I think yeah, she identifies as a woman. Um, and it was an all drag king competition. And I was the only one that chose to do a song about women. Um, and I remember getting a little bit of like, going to a rehearsal one day and getting a little bit of like backlash from the person who was producing it saying like she didn't really see the idea of masculinity in there and like uh, wasn't really sure about it and was very nice and was like oh but it's like a really good performance like but would you maybe consider doing like a drag king number instead um, and so, of course, I had to, yeah, really consider what my role was. But in the end, I just did what I wanted. I did that song and just told her, like, I, like, my drag doesn't, it's, it's not dependent on, like, a certain voice or a certain idea of what masculinity or femininity or what being a man or a woman is. And I'm really thinking about, yeah, how to push those kind of boundaries and think about what fluidity can look like and yeah I think there was definitely pressure even still is um to kind of showcase a certain type of drag with the body that I'm in as uh, you know first generation immigrant uh, from Korea I really uh, understand you know the kind of tension that exists in the gender politics and the gender representations and everything it's really like intense device um, there and in people's psyche um, a little bit more about cultural representation, but uh, some, some of the national representation. I know uh, the House, House of Rice have some members from uh, other uh, nations or other cultures. Um, Shay, just as the mother of the House of Rice, do you feel uh, responsible to represent Asia in broader and more embracing ways? <laughs> I do, and I also feel like it like ties into the question before about pressure. I definitely feel that there is pressure for me to try and like incorporate and include as many representatives of Asia in a broader kind of way. But I I, I know that I can't spread myself too thin. But I was uh, I try and do different things to kind of help. Re like represent Asia in a broader sense. Recently with my rice cake party, we focused our March party around um, the Holy Festival, which is a Hindu holiday, which is the festival of color and life and the beginning of spring. But being this being a Hindu holiday, we wanted to cast an entire lineup of just South Asian drag performers, South Asian DJs and South Asian go-go dancers. And we took a step back as performers and we want, wanted to make sure that these, this underrepresented community would be able to get the spotlight and get that, that visibility and representation that I've been fighting for for everyone else as well. But with a more focus on these, these individuals. And it was like a very beautiful, beautiful night. The amount, like the energy in the room was like 
just magical seeing how many of these folk who I don't think generally feel like they are seen, like just came out and just celebrated their queerness, celebrated their culture, like on the floor, on the stage. It was just so magical. I cried probably three times that night. (laughs) That sounds really powerful. Um, I remember, I think it was one of uh, your digital performance, um, the House of Rice did, um, like mentioning the discrimination um, that can be felt by uh, like darker skinned Asians. So, you know, there are indeed lots of divisions and discrimination uh, existing amongst the Asian uh, communities. So, you know, bringing um, all those like people together and under the house of the rice or uh, rice cake party and um, just mingle and celebrate um, and represent unapologetically. Uh, that sounds really powerful. So thank you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so talking a little bit more about character and variety of representation, I'm curious about uh, your drag names. And you know, made in China, your name is really brilliant, as are your performances. I find some humor in it um, that you know comments on our culture that stigmatizes made in China products. At the same time, North American culture consumes a huge quantity of them, and they need them in the in the current economic. Uh, situations and the cycle. Is there any memorable uh, backstory in deciding your drag name? Mm, yeah, I. Well, and just to like speak on that and the stigma, the stigma around like even just the phrase "made in China" printed on a product. I remember from a very young age, like hearing the sort of like the negative connotation with that, and just like so um so much just like subliminally subliminally understanding that like if a product came from china it was like not good and it was there's like yeah that stigma was very real and um but when i came up with the name it's there's definitely humor in it there's definitely it's sassy and cheeky in the sense that i would i've been asked the question of where i'm from by white people (laughs) throughout my life um, it happens all the time, and uh, a lot of the time, I will say that I'm Chinese, and people kind of don't believe me um, because I'm mixed, and because they think that I'm, you know, racially ambiguous or whatever. And so the the name made in China was sort of like a cheeky thing of like I actually I was born in Canada, I wasn't made in China, but it's like this um, this reinforcement of just like the only way that they'll understand that is if is if you're just like Chinese enough for them to be made in China. And then also that that's something that they think is negative. Um, yeah, but I definitely, I, yeah, I, I very much resonate with the, that you thought of that in the name because I talk about it with my brother, my brother, Brandon all the time. Um, just about those experiences growing up and having people like throw that in our face. Mm-hmm. I really hate that, like that stigma of it being bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is why I love you so much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's really interesting the cultural, you know, uh, that connotation and playing with it and being light about, you know, uh, kind of playing with that notion for people to digest the difficult, you know, issues of racism and um, labor and um, a lot of things. Um, how about you two, Shay and Romy, any backstories? <laughs> um, well, my, <laughs> my original first drag name I had ever come up with uh, was Venus Guy Trap. um she is long dead but then when i decided to actually there was like when i was doing a charity drag show and i didn't think i was gonna actually do drag um but then when i decided that i wanted to take drag more seriously i wanted to come up with a name that was punny but didn't sound like so gimmicky off the bat and i literally was just cycling through different like ways of 
those different puns. And I came across Shay Dior, which sounds expensive, but she's just a shady whore. <laughs> and my favorite thing is when people who have known me for four years are coming to me out of nowhere being like, I just got your name. <laughs> <laughs> It happens every like every so often, and I feel accomplished every single time someone comes up to me and says, "Oh my god, I just realized what your name meant." <laughs> oh it was god, literally brilliant. me. I did not know what your name meant until you explained <laughs> me eight months after I like met you, <laughs> and I was in the house, it, and you were like my mom already. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. <laughs> uh. Amazing, yeah. I, you know, even with my English uh, uh, language barrier to English language, like I love puns. It's just uh, that's the moment when I love uh, this language. <laughs> Thank you, Romy. <laughs> yeah. Scheme. Um, mm -hmm, scheme. Scheme comes from um, my full name spelled in English. So, Soromi, but it's pronounced Hiromi in Korean, and then Kim, but pronounced Kim in Korean. Um, and I think it wasn't until grade eight that I decided to go by Romi because as a kid, people would always say Swami, or like they would pronounce it really weird, or they would lip, like the SARS epidemic that happened too. So then people called me SARS for a while. Uh, and so oh, then I was oh like, God. yeah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, oh, by my name. Mean, mean kids. Um, <laughs> and like, I really love my name in Korean uh, because I think there's also like kind of an ambiguous idea around it of like not really knowing if the person is a, a woman or a man. Um, but in English, I think it just isn't as yeah, it doesn't have like the same feeling for me, but I wanted to have my drag name kind of be still a part of me. And I also really love um, the book Skim. And I can't remember the author, but it, it, she's a Japanese woman. And the graphic novel just talks about like this teenager who's going through their first like lesbian awakening and uh the main character is also an Asian girl and I remember reading that book and like being like wow this is the first time I've ever read anything and seen a graphic novel with like a queer Asian character um so that book and then also just like my name it just comes from my my given name I really like your name <laughs> it's Korean, I mean it. Um, it's beautiful. Oh my mm -hmm. god. Um, yeah, the calling your you stars that's uh, that that hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe this is a time to talk about a COVID nineteen pandemic and your collective activism and also individual activism. Um, has has there been a big challenge while you're living through your activism in the face of anti-Asian racism during this time? I feel like for me, the biggest challenge was that people didn't believe that there was anti-Asian racism. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that we had to continually produce content and like posts and share of like, to bring awareness to the fact that there, it was like such a huge increase of um, hate crimes and acts that were happening around the world, specifically in our like neighborhoods and our like communities. But that like that was needed because people weren't believing that it was an issue. I think that was the biggest challenge. Yeah, I think in a similar vein, it's like I think it was really difficult to like get to the point of you know, making a post or checking in on people or producing numbers that specifically talked about the racism that was happening to me and other people in the community because it was like, you're already so traumatized and tired. Um, 
And at the same time, there is just like a responsibility to do that because otherwise, you know, who else is going to? But yeah, I think it was just like the the fatigue of just having to like, yeah, like Van said, like post about it so that people would believe you or or like validate that experience. Mm-hmm. But you have one another. <laughs> Romeo. True, yes. <laughs> like, I don't even know if I would call myself an activist. Like, I know I, I um, like if you were to look at me from an outside perspective, sure. Maybe that could be a word to describe me. But like, I think like the hardest thing was just like feeling settled in my body because I think there was like moments during like all of these really terrible things that are happening, just like stories that are being told to me of like people getting spat on or people saying like, you don't belong here or like that kind of thing. Like I remember there was a moment, there was like weeks during the pandemic where I was nervous to go outside and I was nervous to cough and I was nervous to like hang out with my family. And then the hardest thing for me that I went through um, was when the Atlanta shootings happened because family in Atlanta and then most of the women that were murdered were Korean women. And during that experience, like, I wasn't really thinking about like, oh, how should I like convince people like this is this is terrible shit that's happening and this is racism and this is sexism, misogyny and like all of this. I was just thinking about like my family and like my body and like what had what would have happened if it was like my family that was there. And through that experience, I like did this drag show. And we were able to, and it was just like an online drag show, which um, Made in China also performed in. I think that was quite depressing and sad, but I think it kind of shared a lot of my feelings about how I was feeling at that time. And um, yeah, we were able to also raise some money from the audience members and donate that money to the... uh, I believe we donated it to uh, Swan Vancouver, actually, and some of the families that um, the Atlanta murders affected as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I remember um, that time I was actually working with you as well during Digital Carnival, Romy, and um, another artist was a sex worker in America and you know, I was thinking about um, all those folks a lot and uh, checked in. And at the time that artist uh, uh, <laughs> responded, I, I mean, the, her uh, auto email responded that, you know, I really have to take this time off to gr- uh, grieve and uh, care for my community. And, you know, I, I was trying to get work done for the project, but, you know, it seemed like that's not important anymore. Uh, you, we really have to care about uh, those big, big, you know, tragedy in our community and um, take certain actions that are maybe uh, a bit challenging in the uh, capitalist society we live in. Um, I, I I felt very sad um, during that time, and also that sense of isolation and intensified fear, and uh, all of that makes me also uh, think about your kind of like shift towards more of digital uh, production and representations of your um, identities. Did the pandemic um, and expanded digital production of your performances change the nature of your solidarity as as a family? I think so. Like throughout the pandemic, I was working full time as um, assistant manager of a pharmacy general store company. Um, so I was working frontline the entire time, and like Romy's like uh, like Romy said, like I was like terrified of coughing in in the store where the public could see me. 
even if it was just like a little tickle in the back of my throat and I like just needed to get rid of it, I I would hold it in until like tears were coming down until I could get to the back so I can be out of sight just to clear my throat or cough because I was afraid of how the public would perceive that or treat me based on me being Asian and coughing in public. Um, like I did a number, a digital number um, drag performance that was basically trying to bring that to light of me still being a frontline worker, but still being called like being seen as like a carrier of a virus and stuff like that. When I'm trying to just like help out the public by providing the essentials that everyone needed during this time. And then I think from there we were able to, um, we were reached out to do a couple digital projections. And I think just being able to work on these uh, productions together, we were able to kind of unify as a house and kind of send each other support and stay connected with one another while during this time of like isolation, our first biggest project was called uh, In Isolation, uh, which was presented by Up in the Air Festival. And it was their Revolver Festival turned into an online festival called Evolver. And it was actually the first show that included every single member of the house at the current time, because ironically, it was when we were all not able to actually see each other. <laughs> but me and Made in China, Kendall, we were at the theater live, performing live, but we also used video projections of each of the members of the house and incorporated that into our live show. And we also were able to end off the entire show with me and Kendall enjoying a bowl of rice on stage while the projection behind us showcased the entire like each member of the house of rice also enjoying rice together so we were able to end off with a huge family dinner even though we were all in isolation <laughs> that's so beautiful i i was literally crying while i was watching that so um this <laughs> <laughs> family moment you're my chosen family yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, this time we, we, we are living in a very uh, difficult time, like the world is really torn apart uh, with all the tensions and conflicts and war and, um, you know, I, I really uh, appreciate the kind of unity and uh, love and care you have in your house. So thank you. And uh, again, brilliant pun. <laughs> Jay is the queen of puns. Every like other week, she's like sending me new drag queen names or drag king names. And they're always... <laughs> mm -mm -mm. Yeah. Awesome, fun. Um, yeah, so uh, any anything else you want to add? Other experiences, um, Kendall and Romy, you had during this... Um, you know, pandemic and digital work together. Um, yeah, there were so many online Zoom shows. And of course, it's never going to be the same as a live show. But I think there was still that sense of togetherness because it's still a live show. And um, I still think about those moments of like performing in front of a webcam. And I, I still felt those nerves. And it definitely made me think about, yeah, performing in a very different way. I think we've turned out some very interesting, creative things. Um, Kendall especially, yeah. Made in China has done some really <laughs> The queen <shows>. of Zoom. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think, I think doing online shows really pushed my creativity to a new space. And I kind of, there's a part of me that hopes that online shows will still happen, even though we're back to being in person. Yeah, I like the accessibility of it too for people who are immunocompromised and still don't feel comfortable going out or, or who have other accessibility issues. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, just in general, uh, what, what drives you to take risks and what was the biggest risk you took recently? I think risk is exciting because it pushes you sometimes, <laughs> you know, when it works out in your favor, it pushes you to, to go outside of your comfort zone. And uh, for me, this this week was like a big 
week of um, performance risks. I did a show with a friend of mine who's also on the Darlings named PM, and we did a drag swap. So we put each other in our drag <laughs> and then oh. performed each other's music. And um, it was terrifying. Uh, but I learned, I learned that I, I can do like more funny, silly things in drag. Um, yeah. And that like, it just like opened my eyes to being like comfortable with not a hundred percent. Like I said before, like wanting to be obsessed with being in control. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what about Romy and Van? Mine is kind of silly. <laughs> that's okay. That's, that's the best sometimes. <laughs> um, I tend to choose my words very carefully and I think I'm kind of like a guarded person. Um, but I think lately I'm like trying to become more open with other people. And I, I think lesbian is a word that has like come into my vocabulary and I'm like, like I love lesbians, but also like I don't know where they are. Like I feel like there's never <laughs> around. <laughs> so I'm, I'm like always like at shows now. I'm like, where are the lesbians? Are there any lesbians here tonight? <laughs> and then we need like, to give you, like, you a shirt. I don't know, literally. But usually, like at the show, like there'll be like one lesbian. It's like, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> and then, um, like, I'll get whoever's announcing to be like, okay, well, they're looking for lesbians. Like, give them the best lesbian les uh, energy. <laughs> it's, like, it's very funny, but also I'm just, like, I'm thinking about lesbians because, like, it's always a word that I wanted to call myself. But, of course, like, as someone who uses they, them pronouns, as someone who's gender, non-conforming, gender fluid, like, I wasn't ever sure if I was allowed to use that word, but of course, like, words change and, like, words can be very personal and they can, like, really mean whatever you want them to mean. So I feel like um, using the word lesbian to identify myself and, like, look for other lesbians and, like, kind of try and open up that word and degender it feels like a little bit of a risk because I feel like sometimes people want to, like, keep certain words to mean certain things. Um, yeah it's kind of silly <laughs> it's great yeah I think for me the biggest I mean I, I feel like I, the only thing I think about right now is the biggest risk that I took is inviting my dad out to my drag show <laughs> mm, wow. I had told my mom I had told my mom uh, back in Thanksgiving so back in October about my drag and then they asked they wanted to come visit this past month and I was trying to find a time to book them and get them over here. And then I realized like that I wanted my mom to come see my drag, but I, my dad had no idea anything about my drag. And I decided to book it, their, their trip, so that their departure date would be like a day or two after my show. So I would spend the week with them, but then they would come see my show. And if my dad had an issue or it was just like negative re reception that he would just leave the next day. <laughs> and then it was like, I think it was the night, the day before the show, I like, he had gone to the restroom and I asked my mom, I was like, so he knows about the show, right? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, he knows I'm wearing makeup, right? And she's like, sure. <laughs> and I was just like uh what she's like yeah sure yeah he knows and I was like okay and then and then later that day I was like I just I just need to like prepare him so I was like you do don't be scared tomorrow if I have makeup on and he said it's okay you you do you whatever you want and then he said something <laughs> like along the lines of like so what do you mean by like makeup are you gonna have like also like a wooden leg and like something for your like a hook hand or something and I was like oh my god does he think I'm being like Pirates of the Caribbean Johnny Depp like I know Johnny Depp has a smoky eye but that's not my drag <laughs> <laughs> so that was like the base that I had to go off of when I invited him to the show that that's all he knew what was happening wow it ended up being well received and like he enjoyed the show a lot actually but it was definitely terrifying thinking that his only idea was me being Johnny Depp. 
Your parents are so cute. <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm really happy that you know、uh, he enjoyed it. Yeah,、That's、he、sad. even like had. He took interest in like the tipping culture and like、uh, like asked because Kara Karajuku was also at the, in the show and she her sister was、um, in the audience next to my parents so she was translating in Vietnamese and speaking with them in Vietnamese so they like were able to ask more questions about it and like kind of like understand the whole drag、uh, situation a little bit more so it was really nice.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great that you are so really put. You know that so much care to prepare him to you know actually <laughs> face you as you. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. So I want to ask you、um, about、uh, celebration habits and. Family relations a little bit.、Uh, rice is so s- essential for all of you. Other than rice, is there any other significant ingredient that keeps your family together? It's a silly question. <laughs> noodles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely, definitely noodles and soy sauce. <laughs> sauce, kimchi. <laughs> oh yeah, I need them. <clears throat> Yeah, I think also maybe not an ingredient, but I don't think House of Rice has done a hot pot. But I've done a hot pot with Dan and other friends. Hot、yeah. pot was like a thing that through the pandemic, like just in in my apartment with my partner and our roommate at the time, that was like really really important. And just like yeah, eating together and trying to keep some semblance of like. Some routine、yeah. <laughs> in the like timeless era of the pandemic. We've done a, we've done a Korean barbecue together at Romy's place.、Mm, yeah, that was really nice.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we've done a lot of dim sum. Yeah, I think dim sum is the big one. That makes me hungry.、Um. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> me too. Um, it seems like you know eating together is really your shared ritual. Is there? Do you have any、uh, individual, personal, mundane, or regular rituals you practice these days? Like mundane rituals are. I'm pretty obsessed with skincare, so <laughs> I, that's one of my my very key、uh, self care things that I like to do for myself as a performer, just because we wear so much makeup.、Um, and then, like culturally, I. Uh, through the pandemic, I set up an ancestral altar in my home, so I try to remember to do that daily. And、um, there are photographs on my altar table of like different、um, trans icons throughout, you know, history who have passed. And so I try to queer the ritual that way by incorporating them as well as like keeping my family members in my mind too.、Um, yeah. And then I guess weekly I take an estrogen shot, <laughs> so that's that's also a very important ritual for me.、Mm. Nice. And Ben and Romy. I don't think I really have any rituals. I'm just like struggling to organize all the things that I have going on. Aww. <laughs> your your responsibility as a mother, the mother. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's that's your personal ritual.、Mm. Then you know, in one of your media interviews,、uh, you talk about your drag children from mainland China, and you imagine their struggles.、Um, I think you're such a good mother, really emphasizing similar but different、uh, challenges your children go through. And have you ever felt like your mothering is not enough?、Um, as many mothers often have this kind of feeling towards their children. My mom does.、Um, yeah, I think there there are definitely times where I worry that it's not enough.、Um, I think like there are times where I am focused on trying to like get as much like as many shows for the house as possible, or like trying to organize as many、um, events and like bookings for each of the members of the house、uh, that I forget to. Focus on the connection between the house members, and I think like I, I worry that sometimes like if there's like tension between any of the members or something, I like 
I'm failing in that sense. But then I also have to remind myself that like, we are a family and families are never perfect. And we, our goal is to just like work through things together. And I, it's not all on me, but as a mother, I, a lot of times put that pressure on myself and that expectation on myself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not easy to, uh, you know, navigate family politics. Every household has its politics and, you know, as some days are great. Some other days are, you know, uh, not easy. <laughs> um, I have the last question for uh, each of you. <laughs> what is your favorite holiday and why? Mine is my birthday. Oh, <laughs> yay. Is that a holiday? <laughs> yes, <laughs> national holiday. <laughs> you have to claim it. <laughs> my birthday is on February 11th. Um, I just really love birthdays in general. Like I love celebrating everyone's birthday. I think it's just like a reminder that to be grateful for that person and like celebrate um, like another year of survival, I guess. And just a really fun excuse to like see all your friends, eat cake. And yeah, I just remember as a kid, like that was like the only time that I would see my mother consistently every year. Um, it would always throw like these really elaborate parties for me and it was always just like like a celebration of like love um, so I like to I like to celebrate everyone's birthdays and especially my own <laughs> mm-hmm. of course and it's quite uh, interesting that Koreans eat uh, seaweed soup on their birthday because it's the soup your mom will likely have when Uh, she gave birth to you after losing lots of blood it's just uh, the best food you can have yeah I also heard that it was like this myth in history uh, Korean people used to see whales uh, give birth and then eat seaweed ah interesting give them strength and that's why people did it too but I'm not sure Mm -hmm. that's just like my mom told me Uh I think my favorite holiday is Halloween um, Uh because I love like the monstrous side and the dark evil side Um, a lot of my drag is inspired by like villainous evil characters and Halloween I get to explore that even further and have fun with that (laughs) I think the last Halloween I did this very terrifying like skull monster look and I was I had so much fun just painting it on and creating the look and the performance was basically just the look itself <laughs> it was really scary that makeup was so good just remembering I was it really happy with it <laughs> mm. um I think I also like Halloween is one of my favorite holidays um yeah I love I love spooky, ooky things. I also like identify in some ways as a witch, so it feels very appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I loved dressing up as a kid, and I I feel like um, I have a lot of positive memories uh, with like my birth family, like my blood family um, around Halloween. Um, and then I think like in a more cultural context, I love Lunar New Year. I think. I love to eat, so so mm-hmm. always getting yeah. together with family around the. It also was like a time, I think, growing up in, you know, like a white suburban neighborhood where I felt like it was like okay to really celebrate Chinese culture, um, for, for me with and like it was like very present in my house, um, where I think at the time it wasn't usually. So yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's great to end on food. And thank you so much for the feast, this uh, conversation <laughs> feast. Um, I really appreciate it. And it was fun. Thank you. Thank you for having us. For more information about entanglement, and a list of resources for information mentioned in this episode, including links to CBC's interview with Shay Dior, 
a short documentary following the story of Made in China, and more information about their in isolation. Please visit www.cinevolutionmedia.com/podcast. In the next episode of Entanglement, we'll hear from artist and educator Annie Canto, an interdisciplinary artist, performer, and collaborator Kimberly Ho. They will talk about the multi-dimensional role food plays in their pedagogical approach and filmmaking, and how immigrant experiences, intergenerational dialogue, and critical race theory inform their work. This episode was lead produced by Mina Lee, with assistance from Yanju Chang and Rebecca Wang. Editing and music by Leiwa. Entanglement is produced by Sin Evolution Media Arts Society and made possible with funding support from the Government of British Columbia. Thank you for listening.